Well, that's worth an A, right? <laughs> now, I, I tremendously appreciate that. Uh, I was telling Pastor Shen that when you teach at the seminary, uh, different messages and different words uh, go around the campus. And I was a student one time, and I know what students say, and I can imagine what uh, some of them say about me. So uh, the word is not a good word about me most of the time at the Master's Seminary. And in fact, once in a while, I have a guy uh, just drop my class, and that's really encouraging, you know, <laughs> when a guy takes you and drops you, and uh, you know, that's not the greatest encouragement in the world. So to have Marcus uh, say those things is a, a great appreciation in my heart, and really an encouragement uh, to help me to press on. And uh, I tell guys up front, uh, I give you a lot of work, and I, the reason I give him a lot of work is because I believe that this is the only opportunity they have uh, to really prepare uh, for the ministry from the standpoint of Greeks. So uh, I trust that when it's all over, that God will richly bless their lives and uh, use them uh, for his glory and for his honor. I'm extremely uh, glad to be here uh, this morning. I'm glad I'm the, one of the last ones from the Master's Seminary uh, faculty to be here, because uh, you can judge the seminary faculty not on me, but based upon all the other great professors and teachers. I'm glad you had uh, Pastor Mentoria, a great preacher of God's Word. So if I blow things, uh, don't judge it on the basis of me. Uh, look at all the other professors and pastors that you've had from the seminary. I was also uh, delighted for a while to have my family with me. And uh, I don't know what happened, but I know uh, my wife looked at the bulletin and noticed that I was speaking twice. And uh, she was surprised by that. I didn't tell her. And the kids looked at it also. So uh, I don't know. Somebody got sick, and uh, she's taking them home. Uh, but my daughter's not feeling well. She uh, actually fainted. So I just asked that you would pray for her. So my uh, wife and uh, son and my daughter, uh, they did uh, go back home. My wife promises to be back for the second service. Uh, my kids didn't make any promises at all. So I don't know what you're in store for uh, in light of that, uh, but it is uh, good to be here. And when I was hearing uh, Pastor Shin talk about uh, how he loves you guys and how he appreciates the ministry here, it reminded me in some ways of a honeymoon uh, with, in a marriage. And I think about the uh, husband and wife who got married, and the first seven years of the marriage went through quite a few changes. And Particularly uh, that first year, uh, the wife got sick on the day of their anniversary. And in light of the fact that she got sick, our husband uh, did something real special for her. He went out and bought roses and bought candy and got a card and uh, got a meal uh, and brought it back and just really ministered and cared for his wife. And uh, she was so impressed by his great love. And the second year rolled by, and uh, lo and behold, uh, she got sick again on their wedding anniversary. And uh, this time, the husband thought about it, and he tried to minister to his wife and uh, do all that he could. And wasn't able to go out and buy a meal. He decided that he would cook the meal himself. And then uh, things kept going on in the marriage. And it seems like each year uh, that the wife would get sick on the day of their anniversary. And then finally, it came to be the seventh year of their anniversary. And the husband was just fed up. Uh, he no longer thought about going out, getting a meal for his wife, no longer bought any roses or any candy. And uh, when she coughed, she, he wouldn't try to you know, comfort her or pat her on the back. He just finally said, will you quit coughing? Will you stop hacking? I'm sick of this. And I hope uh, Pastor Shin won't be like that uh, after 
five more years. I, I know that he loves you in a, in a sense you're in a honeymoon, but I trust that it will stay like that for all the years that you two uh, stay together. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, ben already uh, read the scripture, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And as I thought about what to speak on, I don't really want to reflect back. I want to look forward. I want to encourage you as a church uh, to be what God has designed the church to be. And we'll be coming from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this wonderful occasion. Uh, Thank you for your faithfulness to this church, for bringing it into existence, for carrying it along, for allowing it to grow and to be the church of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you will continue to bless this church and continue to help this church to be all that you would want it to be. Uh, Thank you for your people and thank you for this opportunity we have to study the Word of God, to open up the Word of God and to let it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that you might give each one of us a heart to hear your Word and not only hear your Word, but to heed it. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, my wife Marlene and I, we've been married almost 28 years, uh, but Marlene and I are both PKs. Uh, We're not promise keepers. Uh, We are... Preacher's kids. Uh, so Marlene's uh, dad and uh, my dad actually went to the same seminary together back in Philadelphia. My dad went there first, and then Marlene's dad went a little bit later. Uh, so we are used to growing up in a preacher's home, and uh, we know what church life is all about. In fact, uh, when I look back to my early days uh, as a young person, uh, when I was a kid, etc., I spent my whole life in the church, and we would get up early in the morning, go to church and stay there, and many times even eat dinner at church and then come back late in the evening. Uh, One of the things that typically happens in the homes of PKs is that they play this game called church. PKs are known to get the other members of the family, particularly the other kids, and they also get some other kids who might not be... uh, part of the family, but friends of the family, and they appoint somebody to be the preacher. They appoint somebody else to be the deacon. Uh, They'll get a soloist and a choir, and you play church. Uh, You have church. So if you happen to be the preacher, and particularly from the cultural background that I'm from, then you get to stand on a box, and you really get to preach. And uh, that was a typical thing that would happen in my home. It also happened in my wife's home uh, because of the fact that we were PKs. Now, as kids, we understood the fact that we were not, quote, having church. We understood that. But unfortunately, each and every Sunday, people come together, and they select somebody to be the preacher. They select somebody else to be the deacon. They select a choir and an audience, etc., and they play church. They don't realize that just because you come together and you have the right people, so to speak, it does not mean that you are a church at all. And I want to address that issue because I'm concerned today that many people play church, but they're not really being the church that Jesus Christ had in mind when he said, I will build my church. Cornerstone, I want you to understand that 
the Apostle Paul wrote a church, uh, wrote a letter to a church that is far younger than you are. A year, five years in existence. Well, Paul wrote a letter to a church that was not even one year old. And that was the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And he wrote it to the church at Thessalonica. And when Paul wrote that letter, he understood that as a church, that there were various needs that they had. In fact, when you look at chapter 4, verse 1, Paul addresses some of their personal needs. Uh, He talks about the fact that they need to walk and please God. And he was talking about that in a very general sense. Paul said, when I was with you, I instructed you, I commanded you, I told you that you needed to walk and please God. And Paul was excited that they were doing that, but he wanted them to excel even more. But Paul also addressed some of their particular needs. Uh, He went from the general to the particular. And he addressed the need of sexual purity. And in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, he talks about that. And then in chapter uh, 4, verses 9 and 10, he talks about the need of loving each other, loving the brothers. And then he also mentions another personal need in verses 11 and 12, where they need to be independent. They need to do the work that God has called them to do and not live off of others. So as Paul looked at this young church, he saw that they had some personal needs. But he also realized that they had some eschatological needs, some needs with regards to the future. And particularly the Thessalonians were concerned about some of their loved ones who had died in Christ. So Paul had to address that. And they didn't quite understand the fact when Jesus comes again what that meant with regards to their own life and the day of the Lord. So Paul had to deal with that, and he did that in chapter 4, verses, verse 13, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And you would think, well, in light of all of those needs, that there was nothing else to address. But when you come to chapter 5, verse 12, Paul addresses the ecclesiastical needs. He looked at them as a church and realized that as a church, They needed to grow. As a church, they had some individual needs. As a church, they they needed to grow in that particular area. So it's almost as if he takes out his spiritual machine gun and fires off a bunch of commands. But all of the commands relate to their role as a church. And the point that I believe that Paul is trying to get across to this young church is that they must make sure that they don't play church but instead that they actually be the church, the church that our Lord had in mind when he said he would build it. And so in this section, Paul addresses their ecclesiastical needs. He talks about the fact that they need to be a loving community, how the congregation needs to love its leaders, and how the leaders need to fulfill their responsibility to the congregation. He also talks about the fact in verses 14 and 15 that They need to be a healing community. And then he says in verses 16 through 18 that they need to be a spiritual community, a place where they rejoice always, where they pray without ceasing, where they always give thanks. And then finally he says in verses 19 through 22, I want you to be a word-centered community. But the issue that I want to address And the one that I'm the most concerned about, even though I don't know the particulars of your church, I know that typically in many churches today, 
The problem is not the emphasis on the Word of God. And I know that's not the case here. I know that you are a church that honors God by exalting the Word of God. I know of your pastor. I know some of the men who are in this church. And I know that you're committed to the Word of God. So I don't dare come to you and, so to speak, address the issue of being a Word-centered community. And I know in light of that that you're probably a spiritual community, that you're committed to praying. You're committed to rejoicing and giving thanks. And I know probably you're honoring your leaders and you're treating your leaders and that there's a sense of peace among you as a people of God. But an area that I am concerned in our conservative evangelical churches is whether or not we are a healing community, whether or not we're the kind of place that people can come to and be ministered to. And I believe that's what Paul is addressing in verses 14 and 15. And let me just read those words once again. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5:14, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. I see that no one repays another with evil, for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. You see, again, my concern is not will you be a church that honors the word of God, not will you be a loving community, not will you be a spiritual community, but will you be a healing community? Will you be a place where people with broken lives, with lives that are messed up, Will you be a place where they can come into your midst and be ministered to and be helped and be healed to be all that God wants them to be? That's my concern. And that's part of being the church. The church is not just a group of believers who come together to worship and to hear the word of God. The church is not just a spiritual community. The church is not just a loving community, but it also has to be a spiritual hospital. It has to be a place where those who are spiritually sick, where those who are spiritually poor, those who are spiritually lame, so to speak, can come and find healing and be restored to the place that God wants them to be. And the question is, will you be that kind of a church? Because that's what Paul wanted from the Thessalonians. In some ways, a church is like a hospital. In a hospital, you have doctors, you have nurses, but you also have patients who are sick. And people come to the hospital in order to get help in order to find physical health. And the church, in the same way, has those who are spiritual doctors, those who are spiritual nurses, but they also have people who are hurting, people who are lame, so to speak, people who can't walk, people who have bones that are broken, people who have hearts that need mending. And they need to be able to come to the people of God and find healing for the hurts that they are experiencing. You see, I would love to tell you that when it comes to the church, everybody is healthy. 
I would love to tell you that every time you have a spiritual checkup, you get a clean bill of health. But that would be to misread the New Testament. That would be to wrongly interpret what the New Testament says about the church. Because when you come to the New Testament, you find out there are Christians like the Corinthians who are hung up with personalities, who are following individuals, who are grouping themselves with certain people who are like them. You find uh, Christians who are like the Corinthians in the sense that there's some depravities in their lives, there's some disorders in their lives. When you come to the New Testament, you find Christians who are like the Galatians, who are in the process of turning from the true gospel to another gospel that is no gospel at all. When you read your New Testament, you find there are Christians like the Colossians who are captivated with philosophy, who are captivated with human wisdom. In fact, when you come to the New Testament, you find that there are Christians like the Thessalonians. Did you notice the type of people that are in this church? When you look back at verses 14 and 15, Paul talks about the unruly. He talks about the faint-hearted. He talks about the weak. See, that's not the ideal church. Those are individuals that need to be ministered to. Those are people who need help. And not only that, he talks about individuals that you need patience with. And then he even tells you, look, in the church, there are going to be those individuals who will do you evil. And you have to make sure that when they do you evil, that you don't turn around and do them evil. You see, all of that stuff goes on in the church. And those are the kind of people that you're going to find in your church. And as people come into your body, there are going to be people that are unruly. There are going to be people who are weak and people who are faint-hearted. There's going to be somebody in this church who might even do you evil. And you're going to be tempted and you might be prone to do evil back to them. And the question is, when you encounter people like that, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, it's time for me to find another church? Well, the thing that you should do is to remember the words that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Because in their church, there were people just like that. And Paul gave them some advice on how they can be a healing community. How they can be a place where people who have lives that are broken, people who have hearts that hurt, people who are stumbling in their walk, can come among the people of God and know that they won't be turned away but instead know that they will receive help. Someone has said that the church is the only place that shoots its wounded. And I trust, Cornerstone, that you will never, ever be a church like that. I trust that you will be a healing community. And if you're going to be a healing community, there's certain activities that you have to be involved in. And the activities that you have to be involved in are not just for the leadership, but it's for each and every one of you. Paul points out three activities that this church at Thessalonica need to be involved in. 
And at the beginning of verse 14, he says, and we urge you, brethren. You see, he addresses all of them. Some have mistakenly come to verse 14 and thought that Paul was addressing the leaders. But no, he's not. He's addressing all of the Christians. And he's exhorting them. He's pointing at them and saying, look, I'm urging you to be involved in these particular activities. And the first activity that he wants them to be involved in is to admonish the unruly. To admonish the unruly. And that word unruly speaks of an individual whose life basically is out of order. It speaks of someone who's out of step. Instead of following in the steps of where God would want that individual to go, somehow they've gotten out of step. They're marching to their own drummer. They're no longer following the steps that God has intended for that individual. It was a word that was often used in a military sense. It was used of a, 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 of a troop uh, where individuals were not in step with each other. So when they said right, some of them were going left. And when they said left, some of them were doing right. And Paul said that can happen in the Christian community, that there can be Christians whose lives are out of order. And when those Christians' lives are out of order, we're not to throw them away. We're not to, quote, even question their salvation, but we are to minister to them. And in the church at Thessalonica, there were individuals whose lives were out of order. Paul spoke about them in various locations. In chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he spoke about some Christians whose lives were out of order. And that's why he had to say say to them, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Paul says what we have to do, uh, to the Thessalonians is some of you, your lives are out of order. Some of you are running around like a chicken with its head cut off. And you're going all about getting in people's business, and that's not appropriate. He says some of you have gotten so caught up in the fact that Jesus is coming again that you don't even work anymore. You're just waiting eagerly for Jesus to come, and you're now neglecting your responsibilities. And Paul says to them, you're out of order. Even when you read 2 Thessalonians, we won't won't turn to any passages there, but there again, it seems like the people didn't listen to Paul and things got work. And Paul had to tell certain people, look, if you don't work, don't eat. Because some of them were living off of the other Christian and their lives were not functioning. And trust me, there are people today in our churches whose lives are not functioning. It's almost as if when you see them, you see a sign that says, out of order. And I don't know about you, but I hate to see that sign. There's a gas station that I frequently go to by my house. And ever since it's changed owners, uh, some of the pumps don't work. And I'm always in a hurry. And I drive to that gas station. It's a big gas station. But always the pump that I want to use is out of order. And so I drive there, and then all of a sudden I see out of order. And I don't have time to wait for the other gas pumps to become free. So it disrupts my life. And when Christians are out of order, it disrupts what God wants to do in his church. 
it causes problems. And so when we have individuals in the church who are unruly, the question might be raised, what do we do? Do we get on their case? Do we take our Bibles and beat them over their heads and beat them down? I know of a preacher that every time he comes to the Los Angeles Bible Training School, uh, I know that once he's finished, people are going to feel that tall. Because he beats them up. He's a missionary. And every time he comes, he beats them up and says, oh, you're not giving to the Lord's work. You're not giving to missions. You guys don't go on the mission field. You belong to a church that's called Missionary Baptist, but none of you are missionaries. And every time he's finished, that tall. I don't even like to listen to because I know he's going to beat me up. I'm going to feel that tall. And then the thing that's so funny is he always wants to take an offering when it's over. So I, I don't do that anymore for him. But, but we're not to beat people up. Our responsibility, Paul says, is to admonish. And this is not the first time that Paul uses this word. In fact, when you look back at chapter 5, verse 12, it's kind of interesting, but Paul says that a leader is characterized and is marked by this responsibility of admonishing. Look at chapter 5, verse 12, just for a moment. Paul says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those, and then he identifies who these leaders are, those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord, and then here's our word, and give you instruction. And the Greek word for instruction is the same one that is translated admonish in verse 14. Paul is saying one of the responsibilities of leaders is that leaders are not only to work hard among the people, not only are they to guide them and govern them and lead them spiritually, but leaders have the responsibility of admonishing. And the idea there is not only pointing out that which is wrong, but kind of putting in the mind and making sure that the child of God understands that they take that direction It's the wrong direction, the warning idea. But also, if the person is taking that direction, admonishing that person and pointing out that they have erred. And that's a responsibility of leadership. Leaders are to admonish one another. But amazingly, when we come to verse 14, Paul says that you and I as Christians are to admonish the unruly. When we see someone whose life is out of order, the tendency is to or pick up the phone and call Pastor Shin and say, oh, so-and-so not living right. And we want to put that responsibility on the leaders. But Paul says that responsibility is not solely for the leaders. But he says that all Christians are to admonish one another. When I see my brother or sister in Christ not living the way that God wants him to live. When I see that their life is out of order, I have a responsibility to admonish my brother or sister in Christ. I'm to act like a leader in that particular situation. And in fact, when you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul's ministry was characterized by admonishing. When he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, And when he reviewed how he ministered to them and the time that he spent with them, he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, these words. He said, therefore, be on the alert 
remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to do what? To admonish each one with tears. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, when I was with you, I admonish you. Not just a few of you, but he said, I admonish each one of you. And I did it during the nighttime, and I did it during the daytime. And I did it for a period of three years. And not only that, when I did it, I did not cease to do it, and I did it with tears rolling down from my eyes. Because Paul understood that admonishing one another is never fun. It's not an enjoyable ministry, so to speak. It's a negative type ministry. It's never fun to come to people and, and warn them. But a shepherd who's a watchman does that. And God's people should be watching for each other and should tell each other, be on the alert, be careful, be watchful. Make sure you don't take that path. And when you see them taking that path, then you have to get in their face and admonish that brother, our sister in Christ. Paul says really that his whole ministry was presenting Christ. And the way that he did that was by teaching and admonishing. Teaching the positive side, admonishing the negative side. And why did you do that, Paul? Paul says in Colossians 1.28, I did that so that I can present every person complete in Jesus Christ. The reason why Paul was willing to go to someone whose life was out of order was because he wanted that person to be complete in Jesus Christ. And the reason why you should go to your brother and sister in Christ when, you're, when their life is out of order because your heart's desire ought to be for one another that I want my brothers and sisters in Christ to be all that God intended that individual to be in Christ. And so the church is to admonish the unruly. It's not a pleasant ministry. It's not a fun task. But as the church functioning as a healing community, it must admonish the unruly. Now, I don't know what that looks like in your church. But you have to be sensitive and alert to the Spirit of God to know when someone's life is out of order. It could be a husband who, quote, loves the Lord so much, but yet he doesn't have time to provide for his family. And when God says that the husband is to provide for his family, then his life is out of order. It could be a wife who is so busy about so many different things, but yet she neglects her home. Her, her, her ultimate place and sphere of influence. And when somebody sees that, they might have to come and admonish that wife. It could be a Christian who's not practicing the disciplines, not spending time in prayer or reading the Word of God or, or fellowshipping with the saints. And when that takes place, then the body of Christ has to respond by admonishing the unruly. The second activity of a healing church is that Paul says in the middle part of verse 14, that you are to encourage the faint-hearted. He mentions another group of people. And the people that he now mentions are the faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted are individuals 
whose souls basically have been shrunk. We would say that there are individuals who are discouraged, individuals who are downcast, or to use modern terminology, we would say that these are individuals who are depressed. Life circumstances, whether they're hardships or trials or temptations, have, have kind of entered into that person's life, and no longer do they have a strong and large soul. Their soul has been shrunk down. And when you find people like that in the church, it's interesting, Paul does not say go to that individual and admonish that individual. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says instead what you are to do is what? Encourage the faint-hearted. You see, in light of where people are spiritually, that determines how we are to minister to those individuals. And there are going to be people in the church whose souls have been shrunk. That happened in the church at Thessalonica. There were certain individuals who didn't have that robust and large and healthy soul because they had become sad about the fact that certain ones in their church had died. And they had died as Christians. But somehow, some way, they thought they were going to miss out on the glorious rapture, or that they would not fully participate in that. And Paul looked at them and heard about them almost to the point where he said that you're almost on the verge of grieving about these individuals like an unsaved person would grieve like an unsaved person who has no salvation. You see, when a person who is lost dies, there's no hope. But when a Christian dies, there is hope. There is a destiny. And Paul was looking at the Thessalonians and some of them were grieving out of ignorance. Some of them were grieving as if there was no hope. And so Paul had to encourage them. He had to give them some wonderful gospel truth about the fact that Jesus is coming again. And there's going to be a great family reunion. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then those of us who are alive and left will be caught up in the air and we will meet the Lord and we will be with him forevermore. And Paul says, take that truth and do what? Encourage one another. Their souls have become small. But the truth of God's word was to be used in their life to encourage them. And there are people like that all the time in the church. There are people whose hearts have become small. There are people's hearts who are broken. And that's no time to admonish them. That's no time to say your life is out of order. What they need is for you and for me to come and encourage them. Not with some pop psychology. Not with some false hope things will get better. Not by taking some kind of medication, Valium, or take a little wine and you'll be okay. But instead, taking the Word of God to them and using the Word of God in their lives so that their hearts will get back to its normal size. And they'll be able to go on and press on. I don't know about you, but I need encouragement. And when I say that Marcus encouraged my heart this morning, he did. Because my heart does get small. It's no fun being known as on campus as a guy that nobody wants to take. It is. It's no fun at all. I, I say to myself sometimes, Lord, why should I do this? 
Uh, normally when I get students, it's because the other classes are full. So I get the leftovers. Uh, and, and yet I have to realize, and I tell the guy, this is God's sovereign plan for you. But I need encouragement. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Guys don't believe in God's sovereignty when it comes to my Greek class. Uh, they believe they should plan their own life, uh, not let God plan it for them. But we all need encouragement. Now, there are times when we do get a bit discouraged. And we need to be encouraged by the word of God, particularly and foremost, because that's the only thing that will give us lasting encouragement and courage and joy and cheer. The great apostle Paul needed encouragement. Uh, read sometime 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and following. When Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians, he didn't know what the Thessalonians thought of him. He didn't know if the Thessalonians believed in the lies that had been spread about him. But Timothy came back with a report. Paul said it was such a good report, it sounded like gospel in my ears. It was that kind of a good report. It was so marvelous that Paul said, I put it on the same level as the good news about Jesus Christ. Because Paul said, I was down. I was in the midst of afflictions and hardships. And he said, I was even to the point where pretty much there was no life. But he says, but now in light of this report from Timothy, Thessalonians, about how you care for me just like I care for you, how you want to see me just like I want to see you, Paul says, now I live. Your leaders need encouragement. And you as members, you need encouragement. So Paul, this great apostle who, who knew the word of God, yet he needed to be encouraged. And he talks about there are individuals at times who come his way, and what do they do? They refresh his heart. It was like a breath of fresh air. We need to be Barnabases. We need to be like Barnabas, Barnabas that son of encouragement. We need to be like Titus, that God used to encourage the heart of the apostle Paul. And when you look around you, and when you get involved in the lives of people, when you start talking with them, you're going to see that people go through hardships and difficulties that shrinks their soul, and they need to be encouraged. They need to be cheered up with the wonderful truths of the Word of God. The question is, are you the kind of person that can do that. Can you go to someone whose whole world has come crushing down upon them? And can you go to that individual and be a source of encouragement? Can you use the word of God to cheer them on in the ways of the Lord? Paul says, I want you to admonish the unruly. But when it comes to the faint-hearted, not the feeble-minded, as the King James, it's nothing wrong with the mind, but it's a soul that has shrunk. I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. Those are the actions of a healing community. But then Paul goes on and talks about the third action. He says that uh, in the latter part of verse 14, that you help the weak. Typically, when Paul talks about using this word weak, it's normally used in reference to physical weakness. But I would say that the majority of commentators all see it as spiritual weakness. And I have no problem with that, but I would also say that the church ought to be a place that helps the physically weak also. 
even though I don't believe that's Paul's emphasis here. I believe Paul is looking at the spiritual side of man. And he's saying that when it comes to the spiritual side of man, that there are individuals who are weak. And and the, the reason why they're weak could be numerous. It could be that they're weak because they don't know the will of God. It could be that they're weak because of the fact that they lack courage. It could be that they're weak because they're facing extreme temptations and trials. But the bottom line is they're so weak that they're on the verge of falling down. And Paul says, Christians, when you see individuals in your midst who are weak, don't admonish them. Don't even encourage them. But he says the responsibility is help. And this is a wonderful word because the word means to come face to face with that individual and throw your arms around that individual and hold that individual up. The point is that that individual is too weak to stand on his own. And so you are needed to hold up that individual. It's the idea that you come to that individual, you throw your arms around that individual, and you say to that individual, I will hold you up. I will keep you standing. You rely upon me until you make it through this particular situation. My wife said my daughter fainted. Uh, when she was on the verge of doing that, she leaned on her brother so that he might hold her up. There are people in the spiritual realm who are on the verge of fainting for one reason or the other. And you can criticize them and you can say, well, uh, that's what you get because you haven't been eating your, uh, taking your vitamins or you haven't been spending time in the Word. But Sometimes life deals some hard blows. And sometimes Christians just don't know how to handle various situations in life. And when that happens, I would hope that the people of God would rise up and come to that individual and throw their arms around that individual and hold that person up. You see, when the church admonishes the unruly, encourages the faint-hearted, and helps the weak, then it's becoming a healing community. It's becoming what Jesus Christ intended the church to be. Now, I'm going to quote some words from a song, and I know this is not a Christian song, so uh, don't uh, get on my case, uh, but it's a song that, in my mind, helps to illustrate what Paul means when he says, help the weak. And most of you probably know the song, and if you're my age, you probably really know it. But it's a bridge over troubled water. And I just found that the words were, were interesting. It says, when you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side. When times get rough and friends just can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. And, and as Christians, we need to be that to the weak. We need to be able to come into the lives of those who are weak and say, say, I'm your friend. And if tears are coming down their eyes, we need to wipe those tears away. And if they're going through a stormy time, we need to lay down our lives and say, walk over me. I will see you through the hardships and difficulties of life. But that will never, ever happen 
if we're not people of the word. You won't be able to admonish people. You won't be able to encourage people. You won't be able to help people unless you're people of God's word. Now, let me close by just simply talking about some graces that should characterize the healing church. We talked about the activities, but each activity needs to be graced by something else. And I'm going to talk about these very rapidly. Uh, The first grace or the first virtue that should characterize the healing church is found in the last part of verse 14. And that is the grace of patience. Paul is a realist. I, I would have loved for Paul to simply have said, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and everything's going to be fine. They'll respond. But guess what? When you go to people who are weak, when you go to people who are faint-hearted, when you go to people who are unruly, the reality of the matter is sometimes, sometimes they will not respond. And when they don't respond, Paul says, don't you dare get an attitude and wonder why they didn't respond to your wonderful wisdom and words of insight. Paul says, instead, what you are to do, you are to have patience toward all individuals and particularly to those who are weak, to those who are faint hearted and those who are unruly. One of the things that all of us need as we minister in the body of Christ, we need patience. We need long suffering. And I like to take a little liberty with this word and use it as the idea of suffering that is far away. You see, when we encounter various situations and uh, people don't respond the way that we want them to, many times we want to get upset. We want to put out that anger card. Uh, that, no, card, no, that where my temper is short, the temper card. And Paul says, basically, that card is one of those cards you can leave at home. Now, the American Express card, they tell you don't leave home without it. But the anger card, leave it at home. Uh, so that when you encounter a very situation, a difficult situation, and you're prone to get mad, you got to run all the way home to get your anger card. That's the idea of long-suffering. You're long, no, you are to be long-suffering. That anger card should be so far away from you that you cannot even grab a hold of it. But what typically happens? We keep our anger card right here. And as soon as somebody upsets us, we can go right in the pocket and pull it out and get mad and get angry. And Paul says, one of the graces that should characterize the believer as he seeks to admonish and encourage and to help, is the grace, the virtue of patience. Just remember how patient God is with you. I'm amazed at how patient God is with me. And yet I turn around and I act like God is never patient with me in the way that I treat others. Paul talks about the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. And if God is that way toward us, my brothers and sisters, shouldn't we be the same way toward others, and particularly those in the body of Christ? Paul goes on to mention another grace, and I'm calling this grace love. He says in verse 15, See, and when he gives that command 
the command to see, it's something that all of the church is to do. It's a command for the whole church and not for individuals. And the whole church must see that no one, that is, the church must make sure that there is not one individual at all who, when treated in the wrong way, retaliates and treats that person in the wrong way. As Paul says in verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. Instead, what we are to do, seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Paul is simply saying this. Paul is saying that when somebody wrongs you, don't retaliate. Don't pay back evil for evil. Isn't that the typical human response? Somebody does me wrong, I'm going to do them wrong. Somebody doesn't come to my birthday party. I'm not going to their birthday party. Somebody didn't ask me to be involved in this ministry. I'm not going to ask them to be involved in that ministry. That the human inclination, that the sign that you are a human being, is that when somebody does you wrong, you want to do them wrong. And, and I'm really guilty of this. And when somebody mistreats me, I, I want to mistreat them. And I have to remember what Paul says. Do not repay evil with evil. I need to remember what Paul said to the Christians at Rome, that the Lord said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You hurt my son. You hurt my daughter. You hurt my wife. I want to pay you back. But Paul says that's not appropriate. And as he looks at the church at Thessalonica, he says to all of the Thessalonians, all of you make sure that there's not one person at all operating in the church who's retaliating, who's paying back evil for evil or with evil. He says, instead, you guys make sure that all of you pursue good for one another and for all. And that word pursue is the idea of tracking something down, is chasing something down. When I used to live in L.A., there was a dog on our street. And every time I would drive my car out of my driveway and down the street to go to work, this crazy dog would come running out of his driveway. And he would run out of his driveway, and he would start chasing my car. I used to always say to myself, or think to myself, what if I just stop? No, what is he going to do? Is he going to take a bite out of my tire or something? But he he was chasing the car for no reason at all. But that's the idea of pursuit. Uh, Paul says, track it down. Run it down. And he says the thing that you and I are to run down is good for one another. So each and every moment of my life, I'm always to be running down good for you and for you and for you. And you're to do the same thing for the others in the body of Christ. And Paul said it doesn't even stop there. He says you are to track down good for each other, even to the extent that you do it for those outside of the family of God. You see, this grace called love means that you don't retaliate. But instead, what love actually is, love is me pursuing the best possible good for you. If I say I love you, then I'm seeking your best possible good. And that is defined for us in the Word of God. And Paul says, don't just do it in the healing community. 
But he says, go outside of your healing community and heal the people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And seek their good so that they might come to Jesus Christ also. Cornerstone, my prayer for you, my desire for you is that you will be a healing community. That you will be a church where the unruly are admonished, where the faint-hearted are encouraged, and where the weak are helped. That you might be a church that always manifests the graces of patience and love. Because as you interact with each other, as you seek to minister to each other, as you seek to help each other, as you seek to be the body of Christ in this location, it's going to require that you have patience and grace toward one another. I hope that it will never, ever be said of you. I came to Cornerstone Church and I found no love. I came with a heavy heart. And I left with a heavy heart. I came with a life that needed to be put back together again, and nobody helped me to put my life back together. I hope that will never, ever be said about you. But I pray that instead you will be a healing community. Because there are people whose lives are broken, whose lives are hurting. And some of those people are part of the body of Christ. And they need your help. They need your healing touch. They need to experience God's goodness as it operates through you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we realize that in a church like this, where the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted, where the leaders of this church are committed to preaching and teaching the Word of God, that the need, Father, is not to hear a message on being a Bible-centered community, nor is the need to hear about the fact that they need to be a spiritual community. Father, one of the things that troubles some of our Bible churches, that we put so much emphasis on your Word and never that That can never be emphasized enough, but we put too much emphasis sometimes to the extent that we ignore the hurts of people's lives. And we ignore the fact that there are individuals whose hearts need mending, whose hearts need putting back together again. And Father, I pray that as this church continues to exist, that it will exist among other things, as a healing community. May you give them the courage. May you give them the strength. May you give them the patience. May you give them the love to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.